And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 2, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we ask you now that your Holy Spirit would open up our minds and our hearts to receive it. I pray that you would deliver us all from distraction. Help me to speak these things clearly. And we pray that you would open up the meaning of the scriptures here before us. And that we would be able to rejoice in what you've done for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I always love a good hymn that does all the heavy lifting of the sermon. Like we just sang, it's the entire story of the ascension and all the theological import of it. And if you, if you need a good sermon on the ascension, well, there it is. Just read that, just read that hymn. It's really good. Do you, uh, do you know or have you ever had to deal with any space invaders? I'm not talking about the video game from the 80s, but space invaders or, or what you might have heard of uh, called uh, close talkers are people who violate your personal space without really even knowing it. I don't, I don't think they're aware of what they're doing, but, but overly eager folks who push their way into your personal space without invitation. Why is that so uncomfortable to us? Why is that so off-putting? I remember being a long, long time ago in a different place. I was regularly trapped in conversations with a guy who had no sense of personal space. Oh, if he had a sense of personal space, he had no sense of my personal space. And he kept coming into my, my, my bubble. And I would, I would just take a slight step back and he would come even further. And I'd take a slight step back. Dude, I'm, I'm uncomfortable here with how close you're talking to me. But I would get backed up into a wall or a corner. I have no place to go. And he would keep, he would keep pursuing. He wouldn't pick up on my nonverbal cues. You're in my bubble and I'm not, I'm not comfortable with you in my bubble. Well, whether you think about it or not, you might have thought about it, but you all have, you all have a bubble. You have zones of acceptable social intimacy. Now, North Americans and Northern Europeans have bigger bubbles than South Americans and Southern Europeans. I think that's just a truth. One of my favorite uh, pictures on the internet is of a uh, a northern European bus stop, and everybody's like spaced 10 feet apart, waiting for the bus. They're all at this very comfortable social distance. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you. I'm pretending that you don't even exist. It's, it's hilarious, but it shows the very large bubble of, of northern Europeans. But generally speaking, though, however big or small it tends to be, we all have a zone. We have 
The, the tightest zone of intimacy is preserved for your spouse. And, and right next to that, your children. The next zone of space is for very close friends, those who you might hug or, or pull in close to you. The next zone would be for normal social interactions, and then the rest is beyond that for public space, a bigger zone for everybody else. So we all have intimate space, we all have personal space, we all have social space and public space. And it's very weird and it's very uncomfortable and it's very off-putting when someone violates that space and crosses those boundaries uninvited without being welcome. That's why it's so traumatizing. If you've ever had somebody break into your house and take your stuff, it's traumatizing. It's very hard to get over because you have, you know, you lose stuff and that's very frustrating and that's very upsetting, but you kind of get over that. But it's that, it's that invasion of your privacy. It's that invasion of your space. It's very threatening and we have a hard time getting over it. However, if you love someone, you pull them close. You pull them in to your space by degrees. You draw close to each other and you make social and personal and intimate connections depending upon the nature of that relationship. Marriage is about bringing someone all the way into your closest zone of personal space and sharing that personal space. On the other hand, there are all kinds of things that separate us. There are things that pull us apart. Offenses, debt, lack of communication, contamination, fear, anxiety. We could list the things that, that pull us apart from each other. But love brings parties together who are alienated from each other. Now, in our relationship with our Creator, because of the fall, we are alienated. We are at a distance from God. We aren't comfortable sharing His nearest space. Well, because He is a consuming fire, you can't just walk into that space. You would be obliterated. So in biblical language, we need something to uh, bring us near to God. And, and, and in biblical language, that, that's called an offering. An offering is is literally a bringing near. That's, that's what an offering is. And you bring an offering when you have offended God or have incurred a debt or have been made unclean. And in order to be brought back into intimacy with God, to restore the relationship, to renew fellowship, to renew the covenant, you bring an offering. And again, today, you're, you're drawing near to God. You're coming close to Him in worship today, right now. And this is dangerous stuff. You don't, you don't just stroll into God's presence. That's why when we come, we hold the cross before us and we say, Lord, uh, not, not for our sake, but for his sake, based on what he has done, accept us into your presence. Uh, forgive our sins, cleanse us, but on the basis of Jesus, receive us. We hold forth the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, as we continue studying Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, we see, the Paul, we, we see the Apostle Paul fully articulate the human condition apart from the deliverance that God has worked out for us. Uh, apart from Jesus, you and I are not close to God. We're not in his circle of intimacy. We are far from God. In fact, Paul says we are dead. We are enslaved. We are condemned. We have a debt that we cannot pay. There are boundaries between us and God that we cannot overcome on our own. Now, up to this point in what we've studied so far, Paul has, 
has sung the song of deliverance, this great hymn that the Father has elected us, the Son has redeemed us, the Spirit has sealed us. And as a result of this great work of the triune God, those who belong to Jesus have been put over creation. We have been given all the information that is needed for dominion and all the resources that are needed for dominion. And so in the first chapter, we saw Paul go from blessing God for all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places to praying that we as his people would know more and more what it means to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. As we just sang about in his ascension, we have ascended. And so what does it mean to be seated with Jesus in the heavenlies? What does it mean to have all things necessary for life and dominion? And so Paul's prayer at the end of chapter one is that God would fill us up, that, that the church would be full of the glory and, of God and, and make it manifest in the world, that the rule of Jesus would be seen everywhere, all over everything. That's chapter one. Chapter two, he now turns to remind his readers of where they've been, where they come from, and what they've been saved out of. What have we been delivered from? He, he reminds his readers of how we have been benefited from this grace that God has lavished on us. He says, here's, here's what you're like apart from everything that God has done. He, he describes our condition using a couple of choice words. In chapter two, he uses the word aliens. We are alienated from God and from each other. We are uh, desperately alone and separated. Without Jesus, we are alienated from God, alienated from each other. There are barriers that cannot be brought down by our own skill. Another word he uses right at the beginning of this, of this section is the word dead. We are dead apart from Jesus. Not just physical death, but covenantal death. Remember in the garden, God told Adam and Eve that if they eat the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden to eat of, uh, literally there, he says, you will die. But he says, dying, you will die. And, and, and there's some uh, uh, answers there when we, when we ask the question, why didn't they just drop dead immediately? Why didn't they just fall flat on the ground when they disobeyed God? It's because what God was speaking about there was a, was a kind of death. It wasn't just physical. Certainly they would eventually physically die, but they were covenantally dead. They were cut off from relationship with God. They were sent away. They, they and their children were covenantally, spiritually dead. And so the early history of humanity, after Genesis uh, 1, 2, 3, we start to see man moving further and further, this growing separation between God and man. It's, we're passing through God's zones of intimacy in reverse. We're not getting closer to him. We're getting further and further away. So Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden kicked out of the Garden of Eden into the land of Eden. And there was an angel posted with a flaming sword. If you're going to get back into communion with God, it's going to come by fire and it's going to come by the sword. That's the only way back into communion and fellowship with him. So now you're in the land. And then Cain kills his brother. And Cain is kicked out of the land into the world. Further, a further zone of separation from the garden sanctuary. And when the disobedience of man was so great that, that, it, that it stank in God's nostrils and he could no longer put up with it, he sent the flood and kicked him out of the world into, into hell and everlasting judgment. See, 
There are these degrees of separation from God. And for the first centuries of man's existence, we were moving further and further and further and further away. But God, in his mercy, pursues man to make covenant with him and bring him back through those zones of intimacy back into fellowship. So that's where Paul begins this next section. He says, we, you and me, and the Christians in Ephesus, we have been made alive, we who were once dead in trespasses and sins. Those are two words, trespasses and sins, that have a rich old covenant heritage and background. What is a trespass and what is a sin and what is the difference? Well, trespass offerings under the old covenant were offered for sins that were in the category of debt. So if you took something that didn't belong to you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, if you stole, you made restitution with interest and you offered a trespass offering. So if we are dead in trespasses, that means that we have incurred a debt. Trespass sins and trespass offerings deal with uh, issues regarding debt. So if we're dead in trespasses, that means we've incurred a debt. And the more we go down the path of rebellion, the more our debt mounts. We grow deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into debt until we're buried in it and dead in trespasses. Instead of growing in riches, instead of growing richer and richer and richer, we have this, this cycle of getting further and further and further behind, racking up debt plus interest. So what do we need? What do we need if we're in debt? Well, we need the riches of Christ. Paul refers to that in verse 4 and verse 7. He says, um, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, uh, even while we're dead, he made us alive together with Christ. In verse 7, he says, in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God's answer to our debt is his riches. But that's the first thing he focuses on. You were dead in trespasses. That means you were dead in debt. You had a debt that there's no way that you would ever be able to pay it. You're poor. You have nothing to offer. He says you're dead in trespasses and sins. Now, when sins are mentioned in this kind of context, along with trespasses, it points us to uh, the sin offering as well. A sin offering had to do with uncleanness or contamination. The sin offering could be better translated, perhaps a purification offering. So the sin offering took away ritual impurity, which put us at a distance from God. All the things that make you unclean under the old covenant are things that cut you off from worship. They cut you off from the festival life. They cut you off from the celebration and the abundance of being God's people in his land enjoying the land flowing with milk and honey, all these wonderful things. These these contaminations, these impurities put you at a distance from the sanctuary. A saint, remember from our first week, a saint is a holy one who has access to the sanctuary. But sin contaminates us and cuts us off from sanctuary access. And we're removed further and further away. In order to be brought close again, we must be purified, washed, made clean before we can reapproach the sanctuary. So sin in this context is that which puts us at a distance from God. And you feel that sometimes, don't you? You feel the weight of unconfessed sin, you feel the weight of guilt, and you feel like you're just not in fellowship with God. You feel like your prayers don't go any further than the ceiling. 
You feel that everything you try to do just turns to garbage right at your fingertips, right? Well, why is that? It's because you really, it's, it's not just a, a, a theological uh, point to say your sins make you far from God. No, you feel this reality, don't you? And how refreshing it is to unburden yourself and say, Lord, I messed up. <laughs> Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, forgive me of my anger or my lying or my laziness. Lord, forgive me my bitterness. And you lay these things out and you have this very real sense of refreshing and nearness and you're brought back up into communion with God. You see, sin puts up barriers. So the answer to our debt is his riches. The answer to our impurity, the answer to our contamination is his love which grabs us and pulls us back in close through all these zones of intimacy, back into union with Jesus and fellowship with the triune God. So Paul says this to this, these Ephesian Christians. He says, once upon a time, you walked in these sins and trespasses according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is once again, environmental language like we've already seen. Remember everything that Paul started off saying. Remember everything he said about us being in Jesus. Jesus is our environment. In him we move and live and have our being. Jesus is our holy land. And as long as we're in the land, we have life. But if we leave him, there's nothing but death. Now, Paul says, now apart from Jesus, apart from that environment, you walked in a different environment. You followed a different pattern, one not established by Jesus, but one, one following the prince of the power of the air, one, one following somebody else. Now, it seems obvious to us that he's talking about Satan here, right? The prince of, who could that be? Who sets the pattern of wickedness and rebellion and trespass and sins? He refers to Satan here, but why does he talk about him this way? The prince of the power of the air. Well, this, this requires a little reflection, a little thought. Man was created by God to rule under God in a place of dominion over creation. Man was created to be in union with heaven's plan and heaven's design and then impress heaven's plan on to the earth. And, and man were to, was to then rule over earth as, as it were from a position above the creation. Why, why do all the animals go around on four legs or... They don't even have arms. They swim or they have wings, but they're, they're not upright. A few monkeys kind of stand upright every once in a while, but they get down on all fours. I know you're trying to think of exceptions to this. As soon as I say it, some of you try to think of exceptions. But man alone stands upright, right? We have dominion over the earth. We're up in the air and we stand over the animals and all created things. We stand over the plants. God has put us in this position of being upright over the creation. However, we, in Adam, abdicated our role. We gave it up and we turned over our strength to Satan. And now Satan rules, as it were, over the air. He rules over the creation from that point. In Genesis 1, remember, we saw the spirit pushing back the darkness and pushing back the disorder that hangs over the earth, as it were, an atmosphere over the earth. But under the temporary reign of Satan, darkness and disorder pushed back and began to reign in a way. And, and Satan's rebellion and his deadly ideas and all of his plans for 
defacing the image of God and defacing heaven's order on earth. His pattern of behavior is in the air. It's in the atmosphere. But in the ascension of Jesus that, that Paul's going to talk about in a few minutes that we've sung about all morning, the ascension of Jesus has placed a new prince of the power of the air over the earth. Jesus has replaced Satan, and, and, and in Jesus, man now has his rightful position as prince over the earth in a position of, of dominion. In Revelation, you see, uh, John tells us that Satan's kicked out of heaven, right? Satan, Satan is no longer the prince of the power of the air, but his pattern is still in the air. His pattern is still in the soil, is still in the water. Uh, Peter says, Satan's like this old grouchy lion. He's just, he's just prowling around, looking to pick somebody off, the weak and the sick. That's who he goes after. But his pattern of rebellion is still very palpable. His pattern is still, uh, is still very easy to follow. And you see people following it all the time. It's the pattern that Satan set in the garden. And it's picked up and followed by man. This is the course of the world that, that Paul writes about. What is the course of the world? Well, the pattern in the garden was that we ignore God's words. We twist what God says. Uh, men fail to protect their wives. Uh, women are beguiled by Satan and raise up unholy seed. Sons of disobedience, what, what uh, Paul calls them there. The, it's the pattern of men putting their wives out front and say, you deal with God. I'm going to hang back here and see how everything shakes out. You know, call me if you need me. Uh, it's, it's that very pattern. All of this and more is a pattern that Satan initiated in the garden, and that's the course man walks in rebellion against God. This phrase, the course of this world, is, it just clarifies and articulates so much of the bondage that mankind is in apart from Jesus. Why is it that everybody in the world of unbelief always pretty much ends they, all their ideas end in the same place. It doesn't matter if you start with Marx or Buddha or Muhammad, you always end in the same place, right? It's oppression and slavery and ignorance and death. Why? Well, they're, they're starting in different spots, but they're all, they're all following the same pattern. Why does it seem that the the kids on the college campuses screaming things and the, and the political pundits on the, on the news are saying things that sound really very similar. They're all saying the same thing. Are they reading from the same cue cards? How did they get the same talking points? They all have the same definitions and assumptions and presuppositions. And it doesn't take very long for bad ideas to catch on. Why do wicked behaviors and false beliefs catch on like wildfire? Very few people in the midst of these terrible ideas stop and consider what they're saying or doing because they're all enslaved to the same course of this world. They're all enslaved to the same bad pattern of life. And they're just walking in the example that was set by Satan a long time ago. And in the midst of this, there's very little individuality. There's very little diversity. Even though it's in their minds, it's all about diversity and individuality. Really, it's all this very sad pathetic, depressing, homogenized rebellion. It all looks so, so much the same. And you can rewind, you know, back to the French Revolution. It all looks very similar. It all looks the same. People enslaved to this pattern of Satan, people enslaved to the course of this world, not only consistently choose death and not only make, make destructive choices, 
But at the same time, they're deceived into believing that, that their choices are the right ones. They're so cheerfully confident that what they're doing is the right thing. Look how earnest they are. They have the moral high ground. Their confidence is self-affirming. It must be the right thing, right? The, the road we're traveling on is, is well-traveled. See, look at all the people who agree with us. Uh, as I was, I was putting the final touches on what I wanted to say this morning, last night I saw a Chevrolet commercial where they're advertising their new SUVs. And there's a young couple, and you know, it's one of these real people Chevrolet commercials. These are not actors. These are real people. Actors are not real people. I don't know what that means. Um, these are real people. Oh, you just started dating. Ah, yeah, we just started dating. So here's the SUV for when you move in together. That's in a commercial for when you move in together. Here's the, here's the SUV for you. And then step one, two down. Here's the SUV for when you have five kids and two dogs. Ha, 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 five kids. Who has five kids? What weirdos would have five kids, right? That's the condescending laughter. When, when we make a mockery of God's design for man and woman and marriage and family and life, and it's just in the air, it's just normal, it's just what we do, it's just who we are, right? It's just, it's so common, right? That's what you do, right? You fall in love, you move in together, and if you like each other after a couple of years, you may have an expensive party, and we'll just call it a wedding right? That's, that's the course. That's the pattern of Satan. It's the most, rebellion is the most normal thing in the world. And the course of this world is what we refer to today as secularism. Secularism is the fantasy realm where everyone lives as if God is not real. That's what secularism is. It's the fantasy world where God isn't real. And since he isn't real, well, he didn't create you. And what he says doesn't mean anything. It's irrelevant. And so he has no say in what you do. And Jesus doesn't reign over all because he never rose from the dead and he never ascended to the Father and he doesn't deserve any worship or attention at all. That's secularism. It's the world in which none of this is true. It's this fantasy world where Jesus is irrelevant. And the course of this world is in direct opposition to the life of worship and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get caught into thinking that secular things are neutral things. <laughs> Don't mix those up. Don't think that secular things are neutral, as if, as if they're just somehow in between unbelief and belief, as if they're somewhere between obedience and rebellion. The secular world is the world that pretends that God is not creator and Jesus is not king. It is not neutral. Secularism has its own religion. It has its own saints. It has its own liturgies, its own holy days and holy things. It's the system that carries you away from God rather than closer in fellowship with him. And Paul says, you once walked in this world. You once walked. He doesn't let us off the hook. He says, we all once conducted ourselves in the pattern of the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He doesn't give us space for any kind of bad Greek thinking that the, the body is somehow corrupt, but the mind is pure. No, he says your mind is corrupt, your body is corrupt, and by nature you were children of wrath. You were born in rebellion to God. In Adam you were under God's wrath from birth, and you were born in debt. You were born unclean. But God, he says, and I love this reversal um, in verse 4, but God. Here, here's how terrible everything was, 
But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he gives us two things. God who is rich in mercy and God who is great in love. What is that answer? He is rich in mercy because we're dead in debt. He is, he is full of love because we are far away from him. These are two things you need. He pays off your debts with his riches and he brings you close in his love. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's providential that we come to this on Ascension Sunday because as we rejoice in this wonderful truth that God has placed his son Jesus on the throne next to him, that, that, that we remember that, that Jesus has gone up into the heavenlies in a glorified human body. And now that means there is a man seated on the throne next to God. Human flesh has entered the very throne room of God and is accepted. Jesus is accepted there. So we who are united to him by faith are also accepted. And he Paul says, has raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in Christ Jesus. Why has God done this? Well, there's always a reason for why God does what he does. And Paul gives us the answer. Why? Verse seven, so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We who were dead have been made alive, and not just alive, but we have been made kings. And this, God's doing this, is the presentation, it is the manifestation of the riches of God, the grace and kindness of God. So he hasn't just wiped out our debt, he's heaped upon us riches. If you were to take a credit card and run up $11,000 in debt and you say, I can't pay it off. I'm going to have to declare bankruptcy. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm in over my head. And a rich uncle comes and pays that off for you. You're back to zero. It's like, wow, well, great. You, you paid off my debt. I'm, I'm out of debt now. That's great. But now I'm at zero. I'm, I don't have the debt, but I don't have anything to show for all this time either. We see, God has not only paid off your debt, not only wiped it out and the interest that was due and all the penalties, but he has made you inconceivably wealthy on top of that with his spiritual blessings. Remember again, spiritual blessings. That doesn't mean fake blessings. That doesn't mean pretend blessings. What does it mean? Capital S, spiritual blessings. What does the spirit give? Life, strength, order, dominion. That's what he gives. And all of this he says, is undeserved. It's unmerited. You haven't put anything toward it. By grace, you have been saved. It's not of yourselves. It is of gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If there were one thing that you have contributed to your own salvation, you would camp out on that thing and be pretty proud of it. You, you would love that one thing that you did that put God in your debt and that, that pride would eat up your faith. It would destroy your faith. You would no longer be humble. You would latch onto that one thing and, and you would rest on that instead of on God and his mercies. 
So the good news is God saved you from that too. He saved you from your own pride. This salvation that he gives us is sourced entirely from his grace. What did you contribute to it? What did you give? What did you add to the cross? What did you put on top of his offering? Nothing, nothing entirely of his grace and of his doing. Verse 10, we'll wrap it up with verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have been rescued from the pattern of the world and you've been given a new pattern of life. Satan no longer sets the tone for you. You don't follow his game plan. Jesus sets the pattern because you are his workmanship. You are his new creation. In the church, Jesus is setting and creating a new way of being human, a new kind of humanity. And this humanity reigns with Jesus by doing the kinds of things that Jesus is doing for humanity, right? So, so if you've been raised up and you've been seated with Jesus in the heavenly places, you're going to follow Jesus's game plan. You're going to follow his pattern. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, what have we seen him do so far in these 10 verses? He relieves debts. And he draws people in by his love. These are two things he does. We were dead in our debts. Jesus lavishes his riches on us, forgiving our debts. We are dead, alienated by our corruption. God has pulled us in close and loved us. So now you and I, we who are raised up together and seated with Jesus have the same mission. We forgive debts and we pull people in close. We don't like to hear that and we'd rather ignore that because we, we love two things. First of all, we have our ledgers of offenses. Maybe you don't have a, a, an Excel spreadsheet on your computer at home. Maybe you do and that's even more scary. But you have a mental spreadsheet with all the tabs. All the tabs are open and you can click on the tabs and you click on Jerry and you click on Susan and you click on um, Lou, and you click on them, and you've got there a full accounting of everything they've ever done against you, every way they've ever offended you, every way they've failed in your sight, everything they've ever done. You have full accounting of every wrong ever committed, and you can't bring yourself to hit delete. You can't forgive, and you can't release people from their debts and free people from their burdens. You've got that, and also, when it comes to letting other people get close, some of us are shy, some of us are introverted, some of us are just quiet or private, and that's, that's okay, that's, that's all right. But some of us deliberately shut people out. Some of us deliberately erect barriers and, and we do everything but pull people in. We push people away by our behavior, by our attitude, by our deliberately not wanting to mess with other people. Well, if you're doing these two things, if you have the mental spreadsheet of wrongs, you're not releasing people from their debts. If you are building barriers, you're not pulling people in close. So you're not walking in the pattern of Christ. You're, you don't look like his workmanship. And while we're doing this and playing these games, lost men and women are all around us every day at work and in our neighborhoods who are, one, walking around with an immense crushing burden of guilt. And they have no way of paying off their debts on their own. 
therapy and pharmaceuticals and self-medication and promiscuity and, 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 and uh, plastic surgery and exercise does nothing to pay off their sin. They're bankrupt and they have no means of paying off their debts. And on top of that, number two, they are lonely. They are bitterly, achingly lonely. They have no community, no acceptance, no real deep friendship, no family to call their own. That's the world. They have debt and they are estranged. They are alienated. So people of God, brothers and sisters, if we're going to be a place where we reign with Christ, we've got to be really good at two things. Paying off each other's debts, releasing each other's debts and drawing people in close. Those are two things that God has done for us. Those are two things we must do for each other. We have to first start exercising these graces with each other in our families. Hit delete on the spreadsheet of wrongs. Forgive those debts and pull people in close. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless us in this way and continue to cause us to, to marinate and reflect on the things we heard from your word today. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit that we might be obedient, that we might show in every way that we are your workmanship. You have delivered us from the course of this world. So Father, make it fully manifest and known and seen around uh, us that, that, that we are in fact walking in the course that you have set in Jesus. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.